Today is October 13th. Welcome to Native Calgarian. Native Calgarian is being recorded on the Blackfoot Confederacy, the Blackfoot south of the imposed U.S.-Canadian border are the Blackfeet, and north of the border are Siksika, Ganai, and Bagani of the Confederacy. These lands are now on Treaty 7, signed in 1877, with signatories that include the Blackfoot Confederacy, the Stony Nakoda, Wesley Chiniki and Bearspaw Nations, and the Sutina Nation. I acknowledge all Indigenous that are First Nation, Métis, Inuit, status or non-status across Turtle Island as the keepers of these lands. Any mistakes or misinterpretations will be on me. Actually, this one specifically is definitely going to be on me. Um, I encourage questions that so that any misunderstandings can be cleared up as soon as possible. I do not speak on behalf of all Indigenous, but I can share what I think I know as I start walking down the red road. My name is Michelle Robinson. I was born in Calgary as Michelle Elliott, a very English name, which has afforded me privilege in an English colonial world. My mother is Northern Slavey Dene, or Satu Dene. My Indian Act imposed status card by the Canadian government says Yellowknife Dene. My father is so Canadian that I am a daughter of the Mayflower and a daughter of the American Revolution while having an Indian Act imposed status card. I acknowledge my Dene lineage and that even though I was born in Calgary, my family is not part of the Treaty 7 signatories. My Dene uh, lineage roots me in the land of the Hare people, also called the Great Bear Lake people in Treaty 11. I am a native to Turtle Island, and my Dene nation is a visitor to this area of Klinchotine Indehe in Dene, meaning Many Horse Town, named after the Calgary Stampede. My spirit name is Red Thunder Woman, given to me in ceremony. My Patreon account is at Native Calgarian. For those who have donated, I want to say thank you to Amanda, Amy, Ariel, Ashley, Beatrice, Diana, Dustin, Joni, Judy, Julie, Kenna, Matt, Nathan, Sharon, Tiffany, and Veronica. Thank you all for signing up. If you value listening and can afford to give, thank you. For those who cannot afford to give but listen in, I'd love to hear from you at nativeyyc at gmail.com. Send me in your comments or questions. And we are also now on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Nativecalgarian.com is also up. So I started this podcast to start doing education between Indigenous and non And because of that, there are some incredible gaps between the education system and uh, what people think they know about Indigenous. As a result, violence is an everyday reality for Indigenous people. Every generation has faced it, and that's why I started this podcast, was to speak freely without interruption, without tone police, without leadership shaming, without gaslighting questions, as many people don't want to hear an Indigenous opinion but sure want to tell us theirs, usually by people who don't know anything about the Indian Act, colonialism, the constant surveillance of Indigenous people, our protests, our vigils, and our rights. You know, just typical microaggressions that um, end up dealing with every single day as a form of violence. You know, we deal with internalized racism. We now have gatekeepers, and these are people who live off the status quo. We have a lot of people in trauma. And there's a lot of resource depleted because of it. So internal and external re- uh, racism is an everyday reality for many Indigenous people and myself included. Um, so that's why I started this podcast was so that I could, you know, hopefully make my family proud down the road as we talk about these present day issues. Um, so 
I do that land acknowledgement to showcase what being inclusive to Indigenous people looks like to average Canadians. Because up to this point, we actually haven't been doing a lot of land acknowledgements. It's a new um, concept to a lot of people. I have a 45-minute presentation that I'd be happy to do for anyone who wants to see it. And other things that you can do to start putting more cultural safety into action uh, to make a safer place for people who are Indigenous, people of color, LGBTQ2+, you know, first you can start doing something. Um, having good intentions is not enough. You have to take action in order to make change. You have to speak out against racism. You have to speak out against microaggressions and ask questions, create a support system for people that you can understand what culturally safe approaches are. Take responsibility for your own learning. Read, reflect, and ask questions. Do not expect this learning to always come from Indigenous people when there's so many resources available. Take time for self-reflection. Be aware of your own biases, your assumptions, and question everything that you've learned about Indigenous people and take steps to actively disrupt those stereotypes. Um, this is a really great um, time for me to talk about white fragility. So if you hear white people and get hurt and offended by that, there are lots of resources for that. There's a, actually a white woman and her work is totally based on white fragility. So if you look it up on the internet, you will find lots of information about what power and control look like and uh, just help people deal with things like that. So I always try to give resources. Um, commit to lifelong learning. Be prepared to be uncomfortable. Understanding colonialism and the legacy of racism is an ongoing and difficult task. Even me, I uh, learn things every single day. But I do want to say thank you to heretohelp.bc.ca for their What is Indigenous Cultural Safety and Why I Should Care About It piece. Um, I'll also talk a little bit about making a culturally safe place for other people. Um, one of the worst things that there is is silence. Silence really gives a lot of people permission. And I really want to say to people that if you see something that it like a public instance of racism, you know, anti-black, anti-Muslim, anti-trans, anti-Indigenous, or any other form of oppressive uh, interpersonal violence and harassment, uh, we have some tips for you. First of all, make your presence known as a witness. If possible, make eye contact with the person being harassed and ask them if they want support. Move yourself nearer to the person being harassed if possible uh, and you feel that you're not at risk to do so. Create a uh, distance or a barrier between the harasser and the person being harassed. Um, if it's safe to do so, of course, um, ask the person if they consent to be filmed and record the incident. Always take cues from that person being harassed um, and follow up with the individual after it's over. See if there's anything you can do. Obviously, the most important thing is to keep yourself safe. Um, don't call the police. For a lot of communities experiencing harassment right now, you know, Arab, Muslim, Indigenous, Black, queer, trans, immigrants, the police can actually cause a greater danger for the person being harassed. Don't escalate the situation. The goal is to get the person being harassed to safety and not incite further violence. So um, I would definitely argue that there's a lot of information out there on de-escalation. Don't do nothing. Silence is violence. It communicates approval and leaves the victim high and dry. If you find yourself nervous or afraid to speak out, just move closer to the person being harassed to communicate your support with your body. 
So this episode, um, I think, had to be done before Calgary went through something quite big. For those who do not know, for those who do not live in Calgary, first, you might not know, I ran for city council. Um, this is something I did last year. I'm the first uh, First Nation woman to run. I think I'm the first First Nation to run. There has been me, T, in the past. Um, but I, I ran because I wanted to talk about, you know, real policies. I wanted to talk about uh, White Goose Flying Report and implementing Indigenous education for public servants. Uh, that's called to Action 57. I think these things are critical in order to uh, reduce the resources that are going towards Indigenous issues. Um, anybody who's ever done a cost analysis knows that how um, putting a little bit of investment can actually save us money in the long run. And the irony being that a lot of people who talk about, you know, fiscal responsibility aren't even the ones, you know, talking about what I'm talking about. Another thing that bothered me, um, a lot of people have degrees, but they, I know they have zero Indigenous education because none of the universities are teaching that. So even if you, you know, know a lot about poverty reduction, if you know nothing about Indigenous people, then in my opinion, um, there's a huge gap there that needs to be filled. So, you know, I, I ran for a lot of reasons of inclusion, you know, um, anti-racism education, whether it's in the police force, whether it's for public servants in general, so many reasons on policy alone to run. And um, it's been really interesting because now we have an Olympic bid coming up and we have a major vote coming up. So with that, I thought it was important that we have a conversation about the Olympics. Y'all ready for this? There's a lot to talk about when it comes to the Olympics. And for me personally, I know the conversation about reconciliation has come up as well. So I thought, okay, I really need to weigh on on this strongly before people vote, um, even with my limited amount of knowledge. Um, we all agree, uh, right as of today, today is the 13th, all of the councillors and everyone agrees the public does not have all the full information about the price. We all agree that is happening. So you know, I'm not actually going to focus a lot on that because unfortunately, 90% of the conversation about the Olympics is about that. And I want to have a deeper conversation about um, a part of all of this. So when it was first announced that we were going to have a bid, there was a board that was made. And for those who do not know, Wilton Littlechild, one of the uh, commissioners for the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, is actually on that board. So um, he's not just, you know, one of the commissioners. He's uh, one of those people that has been a, a wonderful champion for Indigenous rights. Um, he was also an avid sports person and an athlete. He was a member of parliament. He's a lawyer. Um, he has an incredible amount of distinctions, too many to even possibly talk about. But what is important to know is that, you know, he has a master's degree in physical education and in law, as well as being a truth and reconciliation commissioner. And he's also an Indian residential school survivor. So this is a really accomplished man that's actually a part of this board. But he wasn't the only Indigenous person. And I actually didn't find out until I started to research it a little more. There is actually a Métis woman who's also on there. Her name is Jude Daniels. And, um, 
she does a lot of uh, lawyer work for the oil and gas companies. Um, so really accomplished person as well. Unfortunately, you know, I, I just recently found out about, you know, her contribution to this. So I wanted to acknowledge first and foremost, there actually has been that inclusion to start with from the start. The Sprawl had a really great article, The History of Exclusion, uh, 2026 Calgary Olympics has to be different article. And it says Indigenous inclusion is a must. And, you know, this was uh, quite a few people actually that came together to put together this article. And uh, so I'm just going to quote a little bit from it. Historically, Indigenous people have not fared well as a result of uh, cities hosting the Olympics. The First Nations and Métis believe that the 88 Olympics did not leave a legacy for Indigenous people, states the Calgary Bid Exploration Committee report, which was based in part on interviews with Treaty 7 First Nation and Métis. Uh, Chief Lee Crowchild of Sutina says that the nation is open to a Calgary bidding, but adds that any future games will need more cooperation. It has to be different than the 1988 Olympics. So uh, they also quoted Jenny Philbrick, a member of uh, West Coast Nations who works at the Niskim Center at uh, Mount Royal University and said that it could be positive as long as Indigenous people are included from the get-go. We need to be respectful of the people, the traditions, and the protocols. So I really recommend that you read that. It's a, it's a good article in general. It actually brings up a few uh, different ideas as well. Um, of course, the need for respect and involvement. Uh, Lee Crowchild has, had mentioned on numerous occasions. And um, the article did mention that uh, Wilton Littlechild was a part of that. But I don't know if it actually did mention that um, Jude Daniels was as well. So, you know, at least to start with the bid uh, exploration, we got that right. Um, I know for myself, when uh, we were talking about bringing in the Syrians, I spoke to Nenshi in a group and I said, look, um, I want any new refugees that come here to smell our medicines, hear our drums and see our people in regalia before when they land and I think that that's critical because we need to be a part of any welcoming that they have and uh you know I I personally feel the same way about the Olympics is that it has to have that type of inclusion where people know that they're coming to indigenous grounds and um I'm hoping that for this Olympics coming up that that's a possibility uh I don't really have a yes or no opinion of the Olympics like most things, I think it'll just be imposed on us whether or not we like it. So the hope is, is that we can advocate for some proper respect and inclusion in that um, concept. So I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, reconciliation, because it's important to me. It's uh, the only thing that I will probably do for the rest of my life is talk about truth and reconciliation and the 94 calls to action. And for those who do not know, the Royal Commission on Aboriginal People, they actually had um, over 400 recommendations. And a lot of those recommendations just collected dust. So the Truth and Reconciliation Commission purposely went out of their way to call these 94s uh, calls to action, calls to action instead of recommendations because we don't want them to, you know, get dusty on a shelf. That That's the the purpose of calling them calls to action. And that's why they narrowed it down to 94. Um, now, of course, beyond the Olympic bid in general, these calls to action um, are incredibly important for the bigger picture 
of sports and a lot of commentary that I've seen out there how you know people were like how can the Olympics possibly be a part of reconciliation well that was really hurtful to me because one that means they have not read the 94 calls to action and I'm a nerd and have not just the 94 calls to action but I have like you know volume one the sum uh, summary of the final report and then I have actually the some of the other books as well and volume one actually talks about this as well so of the 94 calls to action um there are some very specific to sports but you know the number one thing uh in my book club and when I talk to groups I ask them what is reconciliation to you and unfortunately there's a lot of variation of what you know reconciliation looks like to different people um to some people they don't care about reconciliation. There's been a study showing that a lot of Canadians are tired of the conversation. And yet when I hear, well, how can the Olympics be a part of reconciliation? Then very clearly, a lot of people are tired of something they know nothing about. So I'm just going to quote straight from the TRC's book here about what is reconciliation. Uh, it says here on page 16, during the course of the commission's work, it has become clear that the concept of reconciliation means different things to different people, communities, institutions, and organizations. The TRC mandate describes reconciliation as an ongoing, individual, and collective, and will require commitment from all of those affected, including First Nation, Inuit, and Métis former Indian residential school students, their families, communities, religious entities, former school employees, government, and the people of Canada. Reconciliation may occur between any of the above groups. So there's so much to read when it comes to what reconciliation is. Um, and I think it can go beyond that as well. I would love to read more from you from the book. So, um, But I am going to skip ahead. On page 297, they actually start going into the sports. Sports inspired lives and healthy communities. The commission heard from survivors that the opportunity to play sports at residential school made their lives more bearable and gave them a sense of identity, accomplishment, and pride. At the Alberta national event, survivor Ted Fontaine placed a bundle of mementos into the Bentwood box as expressions of reconciliation. He included a pair of baseball pants that he worn at Indian Residential School, and he said, these woolen baseball pants carry a story of their own. These are the baseball pants that I wore in 1957 to 1958 as a 15-year-old incarcerated boy at the Fort Alexander Indian Residential School. Little did I know that my mom would treasure and keep them as a memento of her youngest boy. When I leave this land, they will have nowhere else to go, so I hope the Bentwood box keeps them well. When we were little boys at Fort Alexander Indian Residential School, our only chance to play hockey literally saved our lives. A lot of people here will attest to that, as a young man playing hockey saved me, and later playing with the Saskatoon old-timers saved me again. I came back 20 years later, 15 years later, and started playing with an old-timers hockey team in Fort Alexander. In 1983, we ended up winning the first World Cup by an Indigenous team in Munich, Germany. 
So I've included in this bundle a story of these old timers, a battalion of Anishinaabe hockey boys or hockey players that saved themselves and their friends by winning, not only winning in Munich, Germany, Germany, but in three or four other hockey tournaments in Europe. People ask me, why don't you just enjoy life now instead of working so hard on reconciliation and talking about Indian residential schools? What do you expect to achieve? The answer is freedom. I am free. Later that same day, journalist Laura Robinson's expression of reconciliation was a copy of the documentary Front Runners, which she produced for APTN about some Indian residential school athletes who had made history. She said, in 67, teenage, 10 teenage First Nation boys, all good students and great runners, ran in the 1967 Pan Am Game Torch from St. Paul, Minnesota to Winnipeg, the distance of 800 kilometers, which they did successfully. But the young men who delivered the torch to the stadium were turned away at the door. They were not allowed to watch those games. They were not allowed to run the last 400 meters. One of them told me that he remembered being turned around and put on the bus to Indian Residential School. In 1999, Winnipeg hosted the Pan Am names again, and the organizers realized what happened. They tracked down those original runners, apologized, and 32 years later, 32 years later, as men in their 50s, those runners finished the 400 meters and brought the torch in. Sports is a place that we speak a universal language, a language of shared passion for moving forward, our bodies through space and time with strength and skill. This summer in 2014, Regina will host the North American Indigenous Games. Let's all hope to commit to reconcile divisiveness, racism, and stereotypes through the world of sport and support each other and every young person attending those games because they are the front runners of the future. Such stories are um, indicative of the need for a rich history of Aboriginal people's contributions to sport and to become part of Canadian sport history. In November 18th of 2014, we attended an event hosted by the Law Society of Upper Canada to celebrate the first time an Aboriginal community, the Mississaugas of the New Credit First Nation, was to be the host First Nation for the Pan Paraman American Games held in Toronto in July and August of 2015. The front runners attended and were honored in a traditional blanketing ceremony. So call to action 57, or sorry, call to action 87. We call upon all levels of government in collaboration with Aboriginal people's sports, hall, sports halls of fame and other relevant organization to provide public education that tells a national story of Aboriginal athletes in history. In call to action 88, we call upon all governments, all levels of government to take action to ensure long-term Aboriginal athlete development and growth and continued support for the North American Indigenous Games, including funding to host the Games and for provincial and territorial team participation and travel. Aboriginal youth today face many barriers to leading act active, healthy lives in their communities. They lack opportunities to pursue excellence in sports, and there is little access to culturally relevant traditional sports activities that strengthen Aboriginal identity and instill a sense of pride and self-confidence. 
lack of resources, sports facilities, and the equipment limits their ability to play sports. Racism remains an issue. Aboriginal girls face a greater barrier of gender discrimination. Despite many achievements of Aboriginal Indigenous athletes, too many Aboriginal youth remain excluded from community-based sports activities and the pursuit of excellence in sport. The Physical Activity and Sport Act of 2003 set out that the federal government's sport policy regarding a full and fair participation of all Canadians in sport and mandated the minister to facilitate the participation of underrepresented groups in the Canadian sports system. However, the act did not make specific reference to Aboriginal peoples. So call to action 89. We call upon the federal government to amend the Physical Activity and Sport Act to support reconciliation by ensuring that policies that promote physical activity as a fundamental element of health and well-being reduce barriers to sports participation, increase the pursuit of excellence in sport, and build capacity in the Canadian sports system, which are inclusive to Aboriginal people. In 2005, Sports Canada developed an Aboriginal people's participation in sports policy, which recognized the unique circumstances of Aboriginal people and the role of sport as a vehicle for individual and community and health and cultural revitalization. It recognized that Aboriginal people have their own cultural, diverse, traditional knowledge and cultural teachings of play, games, and sports. However, no action plan was subsequently developed to implement the policy. 2011, in preparation for the re revisiting, revising of the 2002 Canadian Sport Policy, Sport Canada conducted a series of consultations across the country, including a roundtable on sport and Aboriginal people. Roundtable summary reported and noted, Participants believe that the needs and issues of Aboriginal peoples were not adequately reflected in the 2002. The feeling among the participants was that the previous policy had no teeth. The new CPS should acknowledge the unique identity of Aboriginal people, what Aboriginal peoples can contribute to sport, and make clear commitment to action. The CSP can support sport for Aboriginal peoples by reflecting Aboriginal culture realities and cross-cultural issues between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal peoples, and an understanding of the motivation behind the interest of Aboriginal peoples in sport. If the new policy doesn't reflect the needs and issues of Aboriginal sport, then it will not be relevant to the Aboriginal population. It would be important to recognize that the barriers to sports beyond uh, extend beyond the lack of resources, gaps, and weaknesses in the sports system. Aboriginal peoples are also affected by issues of identity and historical trauma. Despite this roundtable report based in the 2011 consultation, the Commission notes that the subsequent Canadian sport policy released in 2012 contained no specific references to Aboriginal people. So call to action 90. We call upon the federal government to ensure that national sport policies, programs, and initiatives are inclusive to Aboriginal people, including, but not limiting to, establishing, in, co in collaboration with provincial and territorial governments, stable funding for and access to community sport programs that reflect 
the diverse cultures and traditional sporting activities of Aboriginal people. That an elite athlete program development program for ath- Aboriginal athletes. Programs for coaches, trainers, and sport officials that are culturally relevant for Aboriginal people. And anti-racism awareness and training programs. The 20, 2010 Olymp- Winter Olympics in Vancouver were held on the traditional territories of the Squamish, Musqueam, I'm going to apologize in advance by saying El Wythith and Lawat peoples, and I apologize for butchering those, and they are an integral part of the game. In the spirit of reconciliation, which aligns easily with the spirit of the games themselves, the four host First Nations and the Vancouver Olympic Committee formed a partnership that ensured that Indigenous peoples uh, were given for, full participants in oh were full participants in the decision-making process, a first in Olympic history. At the opening ceremonies and throughout the games, territorial protocols were respected, and the four host nation uh, and other indi- indigenous peoples from across the province were highly visible um, at various Olympic venues. So, call to action ninety-one: We call upon the officials. Of, and host countries of international sporting events such as the Olympics, the Pan Am, and Commonwealth Games to ensure that the Indigenous peoples' territorial protocols are respected and that local communities are engaged in all aspects of planning and participating such events. <sighs> and that's page 300. So that is the final report of the TRC uh, Volume 1 Summary and their recommendations in regards to some of the sports. Now, I still wanted to talk a little bit more, though, about um, reconciliation and sports, because I think not a lot of people have Volume 1 of Canada's Indian Residential Schools, The History, and um, it goes pretty elaborately into this. So, you know, I, I wanted to give a little more history about how important sports really were. And there's a whole section called the sports and the arts uh, from 1940 to 2000. And, you know, in here it talks about a bit more of the history of Indian affairs control over Indian residential schools. And, you know, there's actually a lot of pride in here as well. I definitely want to start talking on page 466. The list of sports that he looked for included two traditional Aboriginal activities, lacrosse and snow snakes. Snow snakes is a competition that involves throwing a wooden snake along a grooved track in the snow. He also took note of whether girls participated in the sports. At the Blue Quills Alberta School, for example, he reported the presence of handicraft, music, singing, and drama programs. He identified a need for more sports equipment. Only two sport, There were only two sports that offered an organized basis, and at the time it was skating for boys only and volleyball. After his visit to Blue Quills, he pressed Indian Affairs official uh, B.F. Neary, to provide money for the completion of the gymnasium at the school. Construction of the building had begun eight years earlier, but was never completed. 
He also arranged to have musical instruments shipped to the school. After Eisenhard's visit to the Hobima Reserve in Alberta, which is now Musquachis, um, a local sports club had been reorganized and a hockey team established. In a report to Eisenhard, Hobima principal G.M. Latour wrote, Armageddon team is good this year, but will not enter into the provincial league. The broom ball team, too, is very popular with the girls and the older men. The games played nearly every evening. We have received, with your cooperation, the two striking bags and 200 feet of braid sash cord. You should see the boys punching at the bag when it's too stormy outside. Many thanks for these sports equipments. It is apparent that Eisenhard urged principals to make small but immediate improvements. After his visit to the Presbyterian School in Kenora, Ontario, the principal arranged to have a soccer field marked off in the school. According to the principal, it proved to be a very popular game with all of those who played. It goes on here onto many different um, aspects of the amount of sports that Indian residential schools did try to have, but it is very clear there was just a huge amount of lack of underfunding. So on two thousand or on four thousand or four hundred and sixty-seven, um, nineteen fifty-one onward, underfunding continues. Eisenhower's position remained vacant after his rec- resignation. Sports and rec- and uh, recreation, lacking an advocate in Indian affairs, continued to be underfunded. In his nineteen fifty-one report, J.R. Turner, of the Missionary Society of the Church of England in Canada, wrote. Nothing whatsoever for sports, summer sports equipment has been provided by Indian Affairs so far this year. Soccer and softball equipment should be furnished. In November of 53, Eric Barrington, the principal of the Presbyterian School in Kenoria, reported that there was a crying need for children's skates and any type of hockey equipment. The following year, A. LaSalle reported that the Roman Catholic school in Kenora was not able to offer its students organized sports because it, it lacked a playground. The National Survey of Indian Affairs Schools, both day and residential, in 1956 concluded, in most of the schools there appears to be little or no physical education programs. A number of schools had no facilities for such activities. Basement areas were obviously designed for playing areas, but they were very inadequate and were utilized for storage and for assembly purposes. A large number of school sites are not properly cleared, graded, and prepared for playing purposes. Many are still in a wild state. Others are overgrown with shrubs and thistles, grasses and other weeds present in very unkept, negligent appearances. Oblig Provincial L. Pulpur wrote to Indian Affairs about conditions at Williams Lake, British Columbia in 1957. He pointed out that a year and a half earlier, he had informed Indian Affairs of the need for a school gymnasium. At the time, the boys' playroom, a room about, you know, 35 to 60, was the scene of bedlam during uh, recreational periods. There was about 150 boys trying to play. The mud that they had brought in their feet had dried, and there was so much dust in the room that you could not recognize a boy at the opposite end. 
Although the department had assured him the construction of a gymnasium would be a priority, nothing had been done. The problem of playroom space is worse than ever. In 1963, Blue Quills, Alberta, school principal P.H. Lyonez described the school gymnasium as a terrible state. Two years later, he lamented to the assistant deputy for Indian Affairs. For the past two years, I've been working through regular channels to get action on a gymnasium and accommodation for our high school boys to replace an old dilapidated building, which has been condemned two years ago by an engineer of the department, but which we have been obliged to use for the past two years. As far as I know, we shall have to use it again this coming September, although I cannot see 40 boys living in such a place. It is certainly a disgrace to the department to force us to use such a building, and to all of those who see it agree that the only solution is to tear it down and build a new gymnasium. So it goes on and on about what happened about the lack of gymnasiums. Um, as a result of, and this is on 469, as a result of uh, 3.4 million budget cut, the following projects were jumped or dropped from the 1968-1969 Indian Affairs budget. A gymnasium at Blue, uh, Blue, Point Blue, Quebec School, a gymnasium at Seven Islands, Quebec, a gymnasium, two study rooms, two activity rooms, and storage facilities at Point Blue, Quebec School, a gymnasium, a library, staff accommodation, and additional classrooms at Fort George, Quebec, a gymnasium, six classrooms, a kindergarten classroom, and a library at Lestock, Saskatchewan, uh, deferred due to the cut in the capital budget. A gymnasium and staff units at uh, Belleville, Saskatchewan, deferred. So needless to say, um, there's quite a bit of information here about the lack of funding that came down to from Indian Affairs to the Indian Residential Schools. And um, unfortunately, this was a huge issue because they used a lot of the sports to try to so-called civilize Indigenous people, but their own trail of lack of funding proves that they actually didn't care. Uh, there's a section here now called the Hockey Successes of 1940s and the 1950s. And um, this is actually um, incredible. There's a lot about um, Quapel in the and a lot of hockey history here about the Labrette Indians and sweaters, all sorts of uh, information from Duck Lake and the St. Michigan Indians. And it's, it's actually a point of pride to, to be reading these stories about, despite all of the odds, how many people did really well and had pride because of there being at least a little tiny bit of hockey or any type of sports whatsoever in Indian residential schools and how this was such a big part of, you know, the testimonies during the Indian residential school um, parts of it. Now, I came across this uh, Canadian encyclopedia article that I think really highlights all of these pages summed up. And because it um, it's Fred Sasakamoose. It's incredibly special to me. 
So I, I just wanted to read a little bit about um, Frederick George Sasakamus, a hockey player and an elder. And he was one of the first Indigenous hockey players from Canada to play in the NHL. He's a former student of St. Michael's Indian Residential School in Duck Lake, Saskatchewan. He played 11 games for the Chicago Blackhawks. And when he retired from hockey, he continued to be um, involved in uh, encouraging youth in sports and involvement in general. But I just wanted to read to you a little bit more about his history because I actually, um, when I first read it, I cried. Um, his early years... Uh, Frederick Sasakamus is Cree, and he was born at Whitefish Lake, now called Big River First Nation, in Saskatchewan. He was raised by Roderick and Judith and on the reserve Sandy Lake, now uh, with a different name. And it was 72 kilometers northwest of Prince Albert, Saskatchewan. His Cree name was given to him by an elder, and it means to stand firm. He is the second oldest of 11 children five of whom survived to adulthood. As treaty Indians, the family was registered under the Indian Act. Their lives, work, and movement were completely controlled by their local Indian agent, a government employee tasked with administering policy at the ground level. Sasakamus was close to his loving family, especially his grandfather, Alexander Sasakamus. Alexander could neither hear or speak, but he taught his five-year-old grandson to skate by tying bob skates, which were the double runner ice skates, over his moccasins. A willow branch shaped with an axe was a hockey stick, and frozen horse manure stood in as a puck. Sasakamus practiced skating in a frozen slough while his grandfather fished on a little lake nearby. When Sasakamus turned seven, a priest, an RCMP officer, and an Indian agent visited the family. Although his mother cared for them, and his father was a logger, the Indian agent de declared them unfit parents because of their so-called poverty. Sasakamus and his nine-year-old brother Frank were taken away to the high-sided truck to attend St. Michael Indian Residential School, which was 96 kilometers away from Duck Lake, Saskatchewan. The boys did not know what they were leaving or where they were going. Two years had passed before Sasakamus saw his parents again. His nine years in Indian residential school were traumatic for the home-loving boy. On arrival, the nuns cut his hair and ordered him to speak English or be punished. He experienced emotional, physical, and sexual abuse. The one joy left to Fred was skating. Although he had no skates of his own, his oversized skates borrowed from older boys he used. When he was 10, he was rewarded with his own skates for following the school rules and working hard at the endless daily chores such as milking cows and chopping wood. In 1944, a priest from Montreal, Father Georges Rousseau, arrived at the school. Rousseau, who became a school sport director, pushed Sasakamus to develop his hockey skills, including his left-handed shot that made him ambidextrous. In the spring of 49, the school's team, Duck Lake Ducks, won the Provincial Midget Champion. I would say Frederick lived for hockey, Rousseau told Brenda Zeman in an interview published in the Sundog Highway, writing from Saskatchewan in 2000. That year, a relieved 15-year-old Sasakamoose finally returned home. 
the following summer, piling hay in a farmer's field with his parents, Sasakamu spotted Rousseau and an unknown white man. Sasakamus and his brother Frank hid nearby, fearing that they would have to return to Indian residential school. Instead, the priest and stranger, George Vogan, asked his parents to allow Fred to attend hockey training camp in Moose Jaw. His potential had been spotted by junior hockey scouts, and Vogan wanted to try him out for his team, the Moose Jaw Canucks. The 16-year-old did not want to go, but his parents saw that it was a chance to improve his life. Sasakamus promised his mother he'd be home in two weeks. That same day, Sasakamus and Vogan drove to Moose Jaw. After Frank Sasakamus arrived in Moose Jaw, he was billeted with George Vogan, general manager of the Moose Jaw Canucks, and his wife Flora. The Moose Jaw Canucks of the Western Canadian Junior Hockey League was a farm team of the Chicago Blackhawks. Sasakamu's talent was evident. Less evident was the discomfort he felt being an Aboriginal in a white world. It was quite the journey, not just to Moose Jaw, but also to live in white society, he recalled in an interview with Larry Loy in 2015. At first, he changed into his gear in a corner away from the 80 or so all-white training camp recruits. After two weeks, many players had been sent home, but Sasakamus was still training. However, he promised his mother he would be home in two weeks, and true to his promise, he was determined to walk the 300 kilometers home. He had made it 45 kilometers northward before George Vogan caught up to him. The general manager drove the hungry youth to a cafe in the town of Chamberlain, fed him, and reassured him that he would make the junior team. Gradually, Sasakamus began to fit in and make friends. He played center, impressing fans of the 2,000-seat Amusja Arena and elsewhere. He worked hard on his hockey skills, developed his speed, on-ice control, and hard shot. Hockey was everything, he told. Every, hockey was everything to me, Sasakamus told Loy. He played four seasons with the Moose Jaw Canucks, and his last game with them was in February of 1954 when they lost in the playoffs to the Regina Pats. Sasakamus scored 31 goals in the 34 games and was named Most Valuable Player. In the ceremony in Edmonton Gardens, he received a pacepipe and a headdress to honor him. I was recognized as the Most Valuable Player and as an Indian. It was something he remembered. After their last game in 1953-54 season, the Moose Jaw Canucks were told to wait in the dressing room for an announcement. 20-year-old Fred Sasakamus was shocked when George Vaughan read out a telegram. Fred Sasakamus, report immediately to the Chicago Blackhawks. The dressing room erupted in tears from his teammates. Shortly after, six women carrying two suitcases filled in new clothes. You have to look professional, one told Sasakamus. The new clothes included a suit and an overcoat he wore that season as he walked into Madison Square Garden in New York City. On Saturday, February 27th of 1954, after a three-day train ride from Moose Jaw to Toronto, Sasakamus found himself suiting up in Maple Leaf Gardens for his NHL debut. While warming up for the game, he was sent to the penalty box. According to Sasakamus, broadcaster Foster Hewitt was waiting there for him. How the hell do you pronounce your name? Hewitt asked. In 2015, Sasakamus told the author Larry Lloyd, Loyi, that speaking with Hewitt was the greatest moment of my life that far. I had always dreamed of this. 
the famed voice in Hockey Canada, did get his name right. But over time, Sasakamoose would have many nicknames, such as Chief Running Deer, Chief Thunderstick, and Fast Freddy. In Chicago, the organist played Indian Love Call, which Sasak- wins Sasakamoose stepped on the ice. I'm going to have to look that up. The NHL League of the era consisted of six team- teams, which included stars as Gordy Howe, uh, Maurice Richard, Bernie Boom Boom. I don't know these names. All that matters is that Sakamoose was number 21 on the Chicago Blackhawks roster playing center. And he was noted for his speed, dancing footwork, and hard slap shot. In the interview with uh, Brenda Zeman, former Blackhawk and Hockey Hall of Flamer Petro Paestati commented that Sasakamus had tremendous wrists. He could be falling down and still get a shot away, and he could skate, and he could stop and start on a dime, and he could hit at top speed in two, maybe three strides. He had the best reflexes I had ever seen, better than Gordy Howe. Sasakamus played 11 games with Blackhawks Black in the 53-54 season. He scored no goals or assists and collected six penalty minutes. He signed a C-form contract that guaranteed $6,000. Yeah, $6,000 if he played with the Chicago Blackhawks the following season. $350 if, or $3,500 if he went to the American Hockey League, and $3,000 if he played with a lesser farm team. When the season ended, he went home to his parents. Home was where he wanted to be since he was a lonely seven-year-old in Indian residential school. Um... You know, there's so many things to talk about after, but I just thought it was really important that we show that he did a really great job of instilling pride in himself. And for the first time, people got to see an uh, Indigenous person playing in the NHL. And, you know, there's um, the the article continues and... It says here that after retiring from competitive hockey, he farmed, trapped, and hunted from his home in Sandy Lake. He never forgot his love of hockey and the belief in the power of sports to improve lives. From 1961 onward, he used his fame to promote opportunities for youth in sports, including hockey, long-distance running, track and field, uh, soccer, and basketball. In 1962, he was a founding member of the Northern Indian Hockey League, and he's been a founding member of many initiatives, including the Saskatchewan Indian Summer and Winter Games, Saskatoon's All-Nations Hockey Team, and the Fred Sasakamus All-Star Hockey Week, a multiracial hockey camp. He also served on the NHL Ethnic Diversity Task Force and was a board member for the Aboriginal Healing Foundation. He also became a chief, um and continues to actively promote youth and sports activities, traditional ways of hunting, fishing, trapping at cultural camps, and is an elder at the Reserves Community School and counsels youth with drug and alcohol addiction issues. Um, Legacy and Honours, Fred Sasakamus helped break the racial barrier for Indigenous hockey players in the NHL. It is a different world for them now. They compete in the outside world. He is satisfied with his life and how it worked out. I didn't have freedom. I didn't have freedom when I played hockey. Now I have freedom to do the things I love. I have no regrets and I'm happy with the choices that I had made. And 
I thought that that article from the Canadian um, Encyclopedia was just the pinnacle of what we needed to know about how sports was one of the only really positive things that some of the Indigenous kids got to experience at Indian Residential School. And in the um, volume, if you have a look, there's they actually have quite a few pages of some of the arts. And they actually mention um, Alex Gervais as well, because he it, they talk about sports and the arts. And they talk um, a bit about female participation and uh, ski training program, music, dance, drama. Um, yeah, quite a bit in here about some of the history that Indian residential schools, you don't always get to hear about this part of it, but it's actually really incredible to read it and realize that uh, how underfunded these kids were, yet how awesome they were at it, despite all of the underfunding that they had done. And um, for me, it was pretty incredible to be reading about um, Fred Sasakamus within these pages as uh, I'm lucky enough to have an auntie that married um, a Sasakamus as well. So when my cousins step on the ice of Sasakamuses, I think that it's uh, just an incredible moment to continue that legacy. So I hope that from everything that I shared here today, that there is a real understanding of you know, systemic poverty has always been imposed through the Indian Act. Now, for all of those people that play sports, just think how incredibly lucky you were to be able to play these sports that certainly were not afforded to the Indian residential schools. And the irony being, of course, that they actually um, use sports to so-called civilize Indians, and yet they completely underfunded it. Um and it's a real shame because had they imagine how many more athletes that could have come had they uh, put a little bit of investment into it. Um, I highly recommend reading these books and understanding the legacy that a lot of Indian residential schools gave Indigenous kids that were not positive. And I remember reading through this and just reading, you know, people saying the only thing that gave us a little tiny bit of hope in the day was that maybe we would get to play a little bit of sport that day. And and it's hard for, you know, me to read when they talk about different areas that I know my family attended, whether it was up in Yellowknife, um, there were uh, points that they talked about having um, curling and volleyball leagues and wondering, I wonder, you know, did my did my grandma participate in some of that, or did did I have a family member that participated? Because these are things we just don't talk about. We don't talk about Indian residential schools and how they affected a lot of the kids. Because um, well, the thing about trauma is that you usually box it off in order to continue, in order to be able to move on. And this is of all traumas. And um, as soon as you open up that box, you never know what you're opening and what pain that you might be opening. And of course, that's the last thing I would ever want to uh, ask of my family is to open up any wounds. But 
um, also this part can includes a lot of the arts. And I think that uh, if we're going to be talking about hosting an Olympics, it's important that we talk about not just Indigenous inclusion in the sports beyond, you know, just the Olympics, but beyond in sports in general. Because, um, I mean, we have so many hockey leagues, soccer leagues, badminton, all sorts of um, different sports that unfortunately a lot of kids don't have access to and that is the one thing that I really want to see um put um monies put towards like so for example the Saddle Dome Foundation is um the I guess charity branch of the Calgary Flames so when you get Calgary Flames um, donations that's going through that and that is where I would like to see um, there be some type of fun created so that that way more kids are involved in sports and it's not, you know, depending on the change of government cut because we need, um, more people being, having access to schools and, uh, being able to move forward in that way. And if we're going to honor the two truth and reconciliation commission calls to action, you know, of course, I'm the first to agree. All First Nations need clean drinking water. And out of all of the things to work hard towards, you know, I would argue who is working hard towards what. And uh, an Olympic bid really should consider the history and trauma of Indian residential schools and how to fix that. There are specific calls to action that we can put forward to. Um, again, my, one of my favorites to talk about public servants is Call to Action 57 that talks about Indigenous education for all public servants because most non-Indigenous people do not have this information about um, Indian residential schools. And, you know, um, Wilton Littlechild, one of the commissioners and, and on the bid exploration committee, I mean, he was also one of the people that talked about the United Nations Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People, which is part of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission calls to action is to implement that. So, you know, the rights of Indigenous people, that should be an Olympic international um, issue that everyone should talk about, no matter where the games are held, there are Indigenous people that need that inclusion. And... Um, I just hope that whatever the Olympic biddy or committee goes forward on, that they really have true, you know, inclusion and education for Canadian people on what the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and Indian residential schools are all about. And if there's any way that I could facilitate that through a podcast of explaining these calls to action and why it matters, then that's the least I can do. Uh, if you have questions about it, I'd love to talk more about it. But unfortunately, we don't have a lot of time to talk before the vote. So whether you vote yes or whether you vote no, I hope that you really consider, if it happens, to think about the legacy of Indian residential schools and Indigenous inclusion and whatever that looks like. Because we could, if we host the Olympics, we could easily host the Indigenous Olympics or uh, Games as well. And um, these aren't things we're talking about. We're not talking about, you know, tourists that come into the international airport. They always see, you know, people in, in white hats. And that's wonderful, but I'd really like to see white hats and 
indigenous regalia and I'd love for sage to be something that's allowed to be burnt in the building. I'd love for people to be smelling sweet grass, sage, and, you know, hearing our drums and hearing our singing and seeing us in our regalia at the airport. And then, of course, being prominent at all of the games, you know, a land acknowledgement at the start of every medal ceremony, a land acknowledgement at the start of all of the events. These are little things that can be done, but to really do that huge amount of inclusion. Um, I did some reading on the Vancouver Olympics, and there were some Indigenous people who said that there wasn't the funding that came along with a lot of the appropriating of their their art, and that, um, you know, that inclusion wasn't um, as prevalent as, of course, the Olympic uh, bid committee may tell you. And then I, I know for me, Ralph Klein, he, in 1988, sent a lot of the homeless to Vancouver. Please remember how many missing and murdered Indigenous women went straight into Robert Picton's hands. So, you know, uh, for me, we talk about security around the Olympics. And one of my biggest worries is that if we haven't implemented the Justice TRC calls to action, that what's going to happen is you have a whole bunch of public servants or worse, hired mercenaries who are basically completely ignorant of Indigenous issues, understanding, and basically paid to throw Indigenous people in jail. And I really hope that we start implementing these calls to action so that we can start having more um, understanding where these resources really should go. It is more cost effective for us to be doing that. And if there's any conservative listening, I hope that you hear that message. Um, So I guess with that, I'm going to uh, start wrapping up here and and just say thank you for listening. I hope that um, if there's questions or ideas that you want me to elaborate on, don't hesitate to email me at nativeyyc at gmail.com. I'd like to say a huge thank you to my ancestors, my granny, my mom, of what strength looks like through her example. My auntie, I know you might be listening to this one, and I want to say thank you for advocating for me when I didn't understand. Um, I love you for that forever. I want to thank my dad for teaching me to be blunt and strong. My stepmom for showing me what a proud culture through her Austrian family and roots looks like, for stepping me, stepping up and teaching me to be a proud Calgarian. Through you, I call myself a second-generation Calgarian. And uh, I want to say thank you to my husband for producing and editing this show on top of being my husband, my childhood friend, father of our child, you know, my support for my journey down the red road, witnessing decades of racism and sexism that I've personally endured, you know, to our child that we're blessed to learn from daily. I'm, we're so honored you chose us. You know, you give me daily accountability to be a better, stronger person. So my Patreon account is Native Calgarian, where you can pledge and support. I want to say thank you to the previous donors for already showing your support. If you value listening and can afford to give, thank you. To those who cannot afford to give but listen in, I'd love to hear from you at nativeyyc at gmail.com. Send in your comments, your questions. We are now on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. NativeCalgarian.com is up. And with that, I say thank you.